Hello there, and welcome to The Road to Nicaea, Christ, Creed, and Controversy in the Turbulent Fourth Century, part of the Earth and Altar Podcast Network. Episode 31, The Midwestern Heresy, Eunomius' Apology for the Apology. The time has come for us to let Eunomius have his say in this whole Nicene controversy. But be warned, dear reader, this book is not for the faint of heart. It has gone down in history as an archtome of heresy, a repository of blasphemies against the sun. It has even been rumored to be lethal. You see, Eunomius published The Apology for the Apology in 378, just a few months before Basil the Great passed away. An urban rumor started that Basil was so upset when he read the book that he died of shock just a little bit later. Apparently, heresy can be hazardous for your health. Now, that particular rumor was started by Philostorgius. You remember him from our Canon Law and Order episode. He's a Eunomian historian who recounts the whole Nicene history from the heretic's perspective. Philostorgius had no first-hand knowledge of any of these events, so... Don't trust this rumor much more than you can throw it. But it does lend an aura of mystique to this book, doesn't it? What did Eunomius say that was so outrageous it could defeat the indefatigable Basil the Great? What blasphemies did the Bishop of Caesarea endure in its pages? Well, the shortest answer, my friends, is the one you are probably tired of hearing by now. We don't know for sure. We don't. No surviving copies of the Apology for the Apology remain for us to read. In the year 398, the emperor ordered all books of Eunomius burned. Perhaps for the sake of his bishop's health as much as anything. I mean, we can't have a book out there that is killing the clerics who read it, can we? Eunomius still had plenty of partisans who preserved his works despite the ban, but none of those survived to the present day. So instead, we can figure out what Eunomius said from the mouths of his critics, specifically Gregory of Nyssa. You remember that Gregory wrote a response to Eunomius in place of Basil, in the course of that reply, Gregory basically goes line by line through Eunomius's argument. Sometimes he quotes Eunomius directly, other times he paraphrases. That means that historians can reconstruct what Eunomius said out of the mouth of his Nissan opponent. Now, old Greg probably would have been thoroughly irritated to learn he would be used in this way, but he can take that up with the professional historians. I'm just following their lead. But you may be asking, is it really fair to try to say what Eunomius argued based on Gregory of Nyssa? Shouldn't we be worried that Gregory will distort or misrepresent his opponent to make his case? That's a very good question. And the answer is, kind of. At the time Gregory is writing his reply, Eunomius's works haven't been burned. Eunomius himself is also still in power. That means their audience will have copies of Eunomius's original manuscript to compare Gregory's reply to. So even if Gregory wanted to misrepresent Eunomius, his audience could easily double-check him and spot the dissemblance. Second, it's unlikely that Gregory would give such a detailed summary of Eunomius' position if he simply wished to misinterpret him. I mean, it's much easier to just make up quick sound bites to misrepresent your opponent, right? Like, I can do it right now. Here we go. Eunomius is against motherhood and apple pie. Eunomius thinks that Jesus is lower in dignity than a 1998 Toyota Corolla. Eunomius hates international pop sensation Ava. 
See, people usually don't go to the trouble of inventing massive backstories for their lies. Now, all that being said, Gregory of course doesn't like Eunomius, and he's definitely trying to cast his position in the worst possible light. So in general, we can probably trust Gregory to report the facts of the matter accurately, but we need to be aware that the context is a highly critical one. Okay, with that out of the way, let's talk about this book. What is the Apology for the Apology? What is its purpose? Well, for starters, the name is a bit misleading. It makes Eunomia sound like some kind of American Midwesterner who uses sorry like it's a punctuation mark. Remember that in the ancient world, an apology just means a defense, usually a defense of your beliefs, and maybe sometimes your actions. Eunomius wrote his original apology way back when he was nominated to be a bishop, because he had to prove to a bunch of skeptical Homoians that he wasn't a super weird arch-heretic like everybody kept saying that he was. Then Basil read his apology and got big mad and wrote against Eunomius. Then Eunomius did, well, nothing for a long time. He was busy navigating the politics of living super close to Constantinople, and tried to keep his predecessor from interfering in his city, and also inflaming his congregation by denying the perpetual virginity of Mary. But then he got exiled and had some time to read Basil's reply in detail, and then write out why Basil was the one who was dumb and wrong. This is the apology for the apology. The defense of his original defense, in other words. He appears to have added onto this work at a later time. The original version that Gregory of Nyssa and Basil read came only in three parts. But later historians, like Philostorgius, are aware of five parts of the work, which means Eunomius added to it later. So he was sitting in exile, thinking of how wrong Basil was about everything, and then even after he published it, he sat around exclaiming, AND ANOTHER THING, and writing down even more arguments. But since we don't have any details about the contents of those last two parts, we'll just have to skip them. So let's concentrate on the three we have. The first part of the work is dedicated to Eunomius telling us his life story and complaining about all the people who have treated him unfairly. Now, we covered his life story last time, so I'm mostly going to skip that part, but there are a few details I want to tell you about. First, Eunomius complains that Basil says he is from Galatia, when in fact he is from Cappadocia, just like Basil. Eunomius was actually born on a border region between the two, just on the Cappadocian side of the line. It's very much Eunomius's Darth Vader moment. No, Basil, I am your countryman. We also know that in this section, Eunomius relates a dream that occurred during a period of intense persecution. In this dream, apparently God appeared to him and told him to keep going. This is a particularly poignant passage because his teacher, Adius, tells us almost the exact same story. Adius also received some kind of dream or vision from God that encouraged him to keep going, despite opposition. You remember from our last episode that Eunomius' network of bishops was comprised largely of wonder workers, people around whom strange and supernatural things seem to just happen. And while we don't have many records of Eunomius performing miracles, he is grounding himself in that group too. He too has wondrous experiences of God. He too talks with the Almighty on the regular. And that, Eunomius seems to be implying, is why you should listen to him. Not just because he is super smart, but because he has a divine imprimatur for his teachings. After relating this impressive dream, he spends a lot of time telling us that Basil isn't smart enough to understand what Eunomius is saying, so he's going to try to break it down so that even a dum-dum like Basil can get it. Thus ends part one. Part two is where the rubber really meets the road. It's also where we learn what the rock-bottom difference between Basil and Eunomius is, 
and it appears to have to do with their very different understandings of how human language works. Remember that for Eunomius, unbegotten is the appropriate name for the substance of the Father. It's not merely a concept we apply to God that only exists in our heads. Unbegottenness is what he is in his very being. Unbegottenness is the name of the Father's essence. So therefore, the Son can't have the Father's essence because the Son is begotten. Now, Basil objected to this by saying that, first of all, we can't possibly know the Father's essence, so it's blasphemous to say we do. And second, that it's perfectly fine to use concepts to describe God, since that's all we have access to. We just have to make sure our concepts are grounded in revealed reality. Now, here Eunomius makes a very interesting reply. He seems to argue that Basil's account of knowledge and language is just wrong. We cannot know anything about the substance of another being through its effects on the world, like Basil says. We can't know anything about a substance through forming concepts of it. I mean, we have a chance of those being partially right, but we are likely to miss the mark. How can we know God as certainly as Eunomius claims we can? Well, because God has graciously given us another means of knowing. God has bestowed the true names of each thing on that thing. Eunomius points to the creation narrative in Genesis when it says that Adam gives each animal its name. Now, Eunomius apparently takes this to mean that God gave Adam the true name of each animal, the name that revealed its substance. Now, humans can call animals all sorts of things, but there is a true name given by God, and that true name reveals the truth of that animal, of its substance. And of course, didn't God use names to create in the first place? Let there be light. Let there be lights in the heaven. Let there be dry ground, etc. So does Basil think that his silly concepts are better than the names that God gave to everything? Huh? Does he? Because if so, then he's the impious blasphemer, not me. I just stick to interpreting the pure names that God gave us to use in the Holy Scriptures. Now, this is a really fascinating philosophy of language. Eunomius is essentially saying that most human speech cannot describe the reality of the world, let alone God. Most of our language simply isn't up to the task. But certain words given to us by God can pierce the veil of mystery and illuminate reality, even the very reality of God. It has some flaws, though. First of all, I have no idea what Eunomius would do about translation. If he was reading Genesis in Greek, then he was reading a translated copy of the Hebrew text. Do the Greek words have the same divine status as the Hebrew original? And was God even speaking Hebrew at the dawn of time, or was the Hebrew simply a description of a third divine language? I mean, I suppose you could say that God was speaking Hebrew, but that's an assumption. And given the way languages evolve over time, even if God was speaking in some variant of Hebrew, it would likely have changed to the point of unrecognizability by the time the Old Testament was written down. Second, Genesis never says that God told Adam what to name the animals. We have no proof that the names Adam gave were some special, divinely revelatory oracle. Again, that may be the case, but it rests on an assumption that Eunomius doesn't argue for. Third and finally, Eunomius' argument that God-given names have special revelatory power would be a lot more convincing if one of those God-given names was the Unbegotten. You know, the name that Eunomius thinks is God's actual factual proper name. But as Basil and Gregory of Nyssa have been yelling about, nowhere in the Bible is the Father called the Unbegotten. As far as I can tell, Eunomius never really tries to ground his term in the scriptures, beyond perhaps the implication that if God is first, then God is by definition unbegotten. 
That argument would, of course, be precisely the kind of conceptualization he has been haranguing Basil for. But alas, Eunomius is not around to respond to my irritation, so on he goes. Now that he's discussed titles for the father, he wants to discuss the titles that Basil applies to the son. You'll remember here that a centerpiece of Basil's theology is that father and son share so many of the same titles, king, lord, light, wisdom, etc., that we should assume that father and son are the same in substance, since they are the same in title. Eunomius scourges Basil for this. We shouldn't be making titles from human invention, that's his word for Basil's conceptualizations, and applying them to the word, and we definitely shouldn't make up new words that aren't in the Bible and give them as titles to Christ. Eunomius probably has homoousius in his mind here. Instead, Eunomius says that God has fashioned a sort of ladder of language, whereby things lower in rank can share names with things higher in rank, while still maintaining their rightful place in the hierarchy. I'm not entirely sure what Eunomius means by this, but I think he might have something like the following example in mind. You may remember that in the Bible, Jesus is approached by a rich young man who says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replies, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Eunomius probably takes this to mean not that Jesus is bad, rather that only the Father is properly called good. But insofar as things coordinate with the Father's plans and allow the Father to work through them, they can be called good in a kind of secondary sense. They're called good because they are linked up with the true good. Now, since the Word is the firstborn of creation and the one who carries out salvation, he can definitely be called good. But since he is not the source of goodness, he is not called good in the same way the Father is. Thus, Basil's argument that identity of names implies identity of essences is just right out. Next, we get a nice little section calling Basil the latest in a long line of heretics. You may remember that many Orthodox writers do this, tying Arius to previous hated heresy arcs, like the Gnostic leaders or the modalists. Well, Eunomius proves that two can play at that game. Basil is just a new Valentinus. Why a new Valentinus? Well, because as you know from listening to our supplemental episode on Gnosticism, most Gnostic teachers, including Valentinus, thought the cosmos was populated by a whole bunch of cosmic figures called aeons. Eunomius thinks that Basil, by elevating human conceptions of God to the level of reality, has basically just created a new set of aeons to populate his cosmos. After Eunomius is done playing his theological game of, I know you are, but what am I? we get a more thoughtful reply to Basil's theory of divine names. You recall that for Basil, each name of God signifies an aspect of God. God is the bread of life because he feeds our souls. God is the true light because he casts away our confusion and ignorance. For Eunomius, this is just wrong. Any true name of God has to signify the divine essence. They all have to mean the same thing because God is one which means that most of Basil's names aren't really proper names of God. They're just mere human inventions that Basil wouldn't be using at all if he wasn't such an impious good-for-nothing. This also means that some biblical terms Basil favors, like father and creator, are more recent terms for God, since, you know, God wasn't a father before there was a son, and wasn't a creator before there was a world. This is precisely the sort of thing that gets Eunomius a reputation for being an arrogant philosopher who thinks he knows better than the Bible. To the Nicenes, Eunomius was walking through the scriptures and ranking which titles really captured the heart of God and which were, you know, later accoutrements. 
Eunomius would probably have said that he was simply using his God-given intellect to read the scriptures properly. With that, we end part two, which brings us to part three. Part three appears to be a grab bag of replies to Basil's other arguments, mostly around the nature of the son's begetting. You will recall that Basil and the Cappadocians all pointed out that fathers and sons have the same nature. That's just what it means to beget something. Eunomius wants to turn this argument on its head, because the Bible also calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. That's Colossians chapter 1 verse 15. Now, if he is firstborn of all creation, then he should share a common nature with creation, right? But then if he also shares a common nature with God, creation is of the same nature as God, and that's just silly. So Basil is wrong and Eunomius is right. Eunomius definitely wants to say that the son is a completely unique product of the father, though. And here's how he does it. And I quote, It is the only essence established by the direct action of the father which must be called offspring and thing made and creature. For its begetting was unmediated, and it preserves its relationship to its begetter, maker, and creator without separation. It is not to be compared to any of the things made through it. End quote. The difference, then, is that the Son is made through the Father directly. Everything else is created by the Father, but through the Son. This also implies that the Father's act of production is categorically different than the Son's, which Eunomius will be happy to affirm, but which will send every pro-Nicene into conniptions. Remember that a big part of the disagreement here has to do with whether we think it's possible for there to be a legitimate place for the Son and Spirit below the Father, but above creation. Ever since Athanasius, the Pro-Nicenes have argued that Arius and Eunomius are trying to have their cake and eat it too. Anything that is not of the Father's essence is part of creation. It doesn't matter how big or impressive they sound, they're still creation, and you can't worship them without being an idolater. Eunomius will insist that the Father is doing something special in the production of the Son, and that there is a middle ground between God and creation that he can occupy without being co-opted into one position or the other. And Eunomius makes no bones about the points of contention. The Son is a creature. Full stop. And if you don't like it, Nicenes, then cry all you want, but your feelings won't change this fact. Of course, the Nicenes weren't as inclined to cry about it as they were to write scathing tracts about it, which means Eunomius has to keep refuting Basil if he wants to stay in business. Next, we get an interesting argument to the effect that two spiritual beings cannot have the same substance. It's a bit tricky to reconstruct, but Eunomius' argument seems to be something like this. In the material world, you can have two things that have the same substance or essence, but are still distinct because they have different material properties. For example, a horse in Kentucky and a horse in Michigan are both horses. They have the same substance of horseness. But they are made of different bits of matter and exist at different points on the space-time continuum. If you took away time and place and matter, would you still have two horses? No, you wouldn't. You would just have the essence of horseness, which is numerically one and the same in between the two actual horses. So, Eunomius thinks, in the case of the father and the son, since they're spiritual beings, their essences can't be the same, or else they'd be identical. They are nothing else but their substances. So to say that their substances are the same is to say they are the same, which would mean the Nicenes are, you guessed it, modalists. 
Yes, once again, that old bugbear of a debate has come up. You know, this comes up so often. Can we get a modalism klaxon for every time someone is accused of it? We are one. Perfect. We have seen accusations of modalism being flung around for a long time. And as far as I can tell, the accusations have usually boiled down to vibes. Something like, hey, you think the father and son are of the same substance. You know who thought they were the same in everything? That's right, modalists. You're friends with that gross Marcellus of Ansira guy, aren't you? He's a modalist. You're friends with modalists. You're probably a super gross modalist, too. But Eunomius appears to have advanced a concrete, logical argument as to why homoousius language implied modalism. It wasn't just about vibes. It was the fact that spiritual beings lacked the sorts of differentiating features that allowed multiple members to share in the same class. Now, Eunomius may not be right, Gregory of Nyssa spills a lot of ink telling us he's not, but it does move the debate forward nonetheless. But all of this controversy is like lukewarm mashed potatoes compared to the hot take Eunomius is about to drop, because now he's going to defend that old maxim of Arius that there was a time when the sun was not. Well, he's not going to use exactly that phrase. What Eunomius says is two things. First, that the sun's essence did not exist prior to its begetting, and two, that it was begotten before all other things. Which doesn't technically require temporal language, but the summary we get makes it clear that Eunomius has Arius's vaunted catchphrase in mind. Now, Basil has savaged Eunomius for saying this. If it is a good thing to have a son, and the son is the power and the wisdom of God and all such other good things, it would be improper for God not to have this good from the beginning and to beget eternally. Thus, the son must be from eternity. That's Basil's argument. Eunomius fights back by saying this argument proves too much. We say the same thing about creation, don't we? If it's good to create, why didn't God start creating from the beginning? But that's silly. So we should just affirm that both the sun and creation are made at various points in time and leave it at that without inquiring into why the father did what when. Interestingly enough, this question of the relationship between the generation of sun and spirit and the creation of the world is one that Orthodox theologians will ponder in subsequent centuries. In general, theologians have tended to treat the creation of the universe as a kind of neutral thing. The idea is that the Trinity is perfectly self-sufficient. It neither gains nor loses anything by creating the world. So creating the world is actually not a good that God needs to have from all eternity. It is, of course, good for us to have been created, and, you know, we might think it's a perfectly jolly thing for God to do. And it is. It's just not something God needs for the fullness of divine life to be complete, in the same way that the Father needs the Son and Spirit. All of which is to say that Orthodox theologians have simply denied Eunomius' premise. They've typically said, no, creation isn't like the Trinity. The Trinity adds something to the fullness of God. Creation may be a good, but it's an external God. It adds nothing to God's fullness. But on the other hand, there are a, quite a few theologians who think that the pattern of creation kind of resembles the pattern of Trinitarian generation. Creation is, if you like, the external working out of the dynamics of God's inner life. Now, we don't have time to sort out that idea fully, at least not in this episode, but the question of what creation and Trinity have to do with each other is an endlessly fascinating one that Eunomius manages to weigh in on almost by accident here. 
We then get Eunomius saying that even if the Son isn't the same essence as the Father, we can still know the Father, at least partially. He says that, quote, the mind of believers leaps over every sensible and intelligible essence and does not even stop at the begetting of the Son, but shoots beyond it, eager to encounter the first in its yearning for everlasting life, end quote. In other words, the human being can learn about the Father by reasoning about the way the Son has been begotten. This also means that the Son does not share the Father's great and holy name of I Am. The I Am, the Father, the Unbegotten. This is the God of the Son. The Son is the God of all other things. But this does not mean that the Son is lame or that we are blaspheming. No! Because Eunomius will acknowledge that the Son exists and is Lord, Creator, and God of the whole world. It's just that he also has a God, and that God is the Father. In other words, there's a sort of three-tiered cosmos here. The Father on top, the Son in the middle, and everything else below that. Having presented his view of reality, Eunomius then proceeds to call Basil a heretic and not a real Christian, to tell him that if he was going to write without any skill in logic, he shouldn't have written at all, and then to end the book. So there you have it, dear listener, the heart-attack-inducing, hierarch-ending tome of heresy that is Eunomius's Apology for the Apology. It is not a Midwestern avalanche of sorries, but a bold defense of an even bolder set of claims. What can we say about this work and about the Eunomian theology that his fellow Cappadocians so despised? Well, most obviously, we can say that Eunomius was not attempting to be particularly conciliatory in his approach. In fact, there are times when he seems to be saying what he knows will get the biggest rise out of his opponents. This is a trait Eunomius shares with his teacher Aetius, and a trait that got them both in a lot of trouble. It's also part of what makes Aetius and Eunomius such attractive targets for the pro-Nicene crowd. Neither the Nicenes nor the radical Anomians had a big enough share of support on their own. They needed the support of those in the middle, who were willing to say that the son was like the father, maybe even like him in substance, but had difficulty saying much more. These were the people that Athanasius and Basil were trying to court. One of the ways to court them was by arguing that the alternative to their theology was Eunomius, and Eunomius was unthinkable. In that respect, at least, Eunomius was not a particularly astute reader of the times. He sought to promulgate his theology through traditional veins of leadership and his personal authority as an authoritative teacher. He tried to install bishops loyal to his theology, but he didn't work especially hard to persuade bishops who were on the fence. He tried to disseminate his teachings in the mold of an origin. But Eunomius was no origin, and he lacked the overwhelming genius needed to convince the world of his hot takes. Perhaps only a genius could have sold Eunomius's vision. Because ultimately, he presents a strikingly different picture of reality than the Nicenes did. For the Nicenes, there are two levels of cosmos. There's the creature and the creator. And the drama of salvation is the story of the two levels coinciding in Jesus Christ. Grade A, bona fide, true divinity, the very substance of the Godhead, can be seen and known and touched in Jesus of Nazareth. For Eunomius, there are three layers of the cosmos, not two. The remote unbegotten, who is ruler over all, and alone ruler over all. And who is God over the second level, that of the Son and the Spirit, 
the divine beings who come from him but are lesser than him in every way, even unlike him. And then third, the created world made through the Son. The drama of salvation now consists of the creator God, the Son, rescuing his world from sin and darkness, and allowing the wise to glimpse in his nature some of the secrets of the God beyond him. Eunomius's picture has a certain drama to it, a kind of mysterious allure. And we shouldn't expect otherwise. After all, there was a network of churches loyal to precisely this vision of salvation. But this vision is also more complicated and less self-evident than its Nicene counterpart. What exactly is the Father really doing in this scheme? And if the Father has no direct contact with the world, if the presence of a mediator God is somehow required in order for creation not to melt away, then what exactly is the point of us knowing the Father? What does the Father have to do with us? Does Eunomius' scheme smuggle in a subtle picture of salvation as an escape from the world of creation, even a surpassing of the Creator God, to unite instead with that which is utterly transcendent, unchanging, and unbegotten? Well, perhaps. I will leave it to you, dear listener, to make your own decisions about the matter. I will confine myself to telling you the decisions made about it in the 4th century. And boy, oh boy, are some decisions about to be made. We have spent a long time just going through who the players are. We've spent many long months digesting the bananas and applesauce of complicated theology and metaphysics. But now, it is finally time for us to move all this nourishment and metabolize some actual church decisions. So get ready as we take our metaphorical metamucil and leave this theoretical rest stop to resume our journey on the road to Nicaea. This is an Earth and Altar Podcast Network production. For more podcasts and weekly articles, visit us at earthandaltermag.com.